It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to talk about NIST. They have finally settled on some algorithms, the first four of their post-quantum crypto algorithms. Steve will talk about them, including one called Crystal's Dilithium. And Apple's extreme lockdown mode. Will Steve start using it? Plus, why you may not want to own a Honda automobile. Whew. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 879. Recorded Tuesday, July 12th, 2022. The Rolling Pone. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Make sure your online activity and data is protected with the best VPN money can buy. Visit expressvpn.com slash security now right now and get three extra months free through our special link. And by Tanium. Tanium unites operations and security teams with a single platform that identifies where all your IT data is, patches every device you own in seconds, and implements critical security controls, all from a single pane of glass. Are you ready to protect your organization from cyber threats? Learn more at Tanium.com slash twit. And by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code TWIT in the How Did You Hear About Us box. It's time for Security Now. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, Bob Barker. No, no, that's the wrong show. Steve and Gibson. Hello, I Steve. I got my lighting proper this week. Oh, yeah, yesterday, because you had the skylight I, yeah, open. I have like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I, I have many high-wattage uh, LEDs that and they 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 point at the ceiling, which is white. Oh, so it's I get nice, this soft, really diffuse. Nice diffused, yeah, yeah. Di- but it it like lit the room so much that my face was dark in like <laughs> in the camera. Right. So I thought, and look at this; it's just amazing. It looks perfect now. So yeah, uh, well, good lighting you know, makes give, a big difference. Even it, you, with a bad camera, it makes a difference, right? Uh, that's right. Well, and of course, we all have that Logitech HD seven twenty yep, or seven twenty two or whatever yep, it is. Yep. So we're at. Security Now episode 879 for the 12th of July. And I was a little ambivalent about the title, The Rolling Pone, P-W-N. It's <laughs> funny. It's funny. That, yeah. That's the official name of the hack slash attack. But I wanted to do – I was toying with rolling your pone – uh, and I thought, well, no, okay, or the rolling pin, but pwn is what it's supposed to be. So anyway, I just left it alone uh, this week. But first, we're going to look at a recently made and corrected mistake in the super important Open SSL crypto library. Uh, what you missed last week, or no, week before last, I forgot to mention, uh, when I was on with Jason, somebody, it was really pretty funny, somebody took the OpenSSL command line and, and remember that OpenSSL is like the Swiss Army knife times a thousand, took the OpenSSL command line and said, what if it was a GUI? And so our picture of the week was that, and it took up four pages <gasps> of, <laughs> of our show notes. Wow. 
and that was for one tab of one subset of the open SSL commands. Those were the options for, I think it was like making a cert. And anyway, so it was just a, it that's was a GUI a for you. Yeah. It was a fun picture of the week. But yeah. anyway, we're going to talk about a, a problem that was found and corrected in open SSL. The NIST, many of our listeners tweeted me to make sure I knew about this and wanted to hear about it, has settled upon the first four of the total of eight post-quantum crypto algorithms, which will become the next standard, much as, you know, Reindahl was the uh, was was de- decided as the AES standard and we and like, like, like the SHA-256 hashes. I mean, we we need standards. Otherwise, you know, it's bad enough that our USB plugs won't go in the right way. Fortunately, they're all the proper shape. <laughs> and, you know, at least we have that. You know, some are not triangular and some are not hexagonal. So anyway, uh, also, Yubico stepped up to help Ukraine in a little blurb that passed by. And I thought, oh, I just got to, you know, give them a shout out and a thank you. Good. Uh, Apple, of course, has added the extreme lockdown mode that we'll talk about or it's forthcoming. Uh, Microsoft unbelievably and the the whole security industry has just gone in meltdown over their announcement that they are re-enabling offices vba macros which are received over the internet after telling us in february to everyone's great relief and many sighs that they were going to finally disable them by default now they're saying you're out of date they've decided not to enable them Oh, you're kidding. No. <laughs> this just in. Wow. Yeah. Mac. So they put out a press release yesterday because there was a lot oh. of upset over this. Uh, and, cool. And uh, macros from the Internet will be blocked by default in Office, according to Microsoft, as of Still be yesterday. blocked by default. Still. Okay. Yes. Okay. And I think, yeah, it, it's there's some nuance in the whole thing. But uh, Well, we'll have, we'll have some fun at their expense anyway because... You know, they're, they're Microsoft. I will show uh, the flow chart that decides whether oh. macros are to run. You've showed it before. <laughs> oh, you mean there's still a way for it to for oh, yeah. to happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, the FBI has created a successful encrypted messaging app, which participated in a major sting operation uh, that we're going to talk about. We're also going to close the loop with some of our listeners. Then we're going to examine an even more egregious case of remote automotive wireless unlocking and engine starting, thus the rolling pone. Because ah, cars roll get it. Uh, after they've been pwned. Uh, and we have a really clever, wonderful uh, picture of the week. So I think or, an or gate. Yes, a little bit of a logic lesson. It's exciting. <laughs> yes. Good. Good show, as always, coming up. I look forward to Tuesday all week long to uh, hear the latest. In fact, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I see articles and I go, I can't wait to hear what Steve has to say about that. Can't wait to hear Stuart's answer. Without you, I wouldn't know what to think about any of this stuff. Uh, our show today brought to you by, I'm happy to say, those good folks at Express VPN. Uh, I don't have to explain what a VPN is to your audience, Steve. They are, of course, nope. experts in this. Uh, and I don't, probably don't have to remind you that there are – this has been a real point of uh, contention of late. Data brokers out there, middlemen 
who buy all the information uh, about you from Google and Facebook and everybody and then sell them off to anybody who wants. And this is a big deal because these data brokers, because they're getting information from so many sources, can really stitch together a very detailed profile of you. Again, I think you know this, our audience knows this, but let's let's kind of remind them, you know, it's not just your browsing history or your online searches or even your location data. It's everything you do online. They sell it off to a company for advertising. You know, okay, maybe that's okay. But of late, they've also been selling it to the government, the Department of Homeland Security, the IRS. Uh, and it has really become a significant cause uh, for concern uh, in this, uh, you know, post-row uh, uh, world. So maybe you need to protect your privacy from these data brokers. You don't want the tax man showing up the, on the door because you searched for something on your phone. What is the Dutch sandwich? After all, uh, mask your digital footprints. Use the VPN I recommend. The only one I use, ExpressVPN. One of the easiest ways for brokers to aggregate data and tie it back to you is through your IP address, right? Uh, which also, by the way, reveals something about your location. Using ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. ExpressVPN only displays its IP address, right? You are coming into the Google search or whatever you're doing with your, not your IP address, but, but ExpressVPNs. And by the way, so important, ExpressVPN invests in their services. So one of the things a lot of VPNs fail with is they don't rotate their IP addresses enough. It's one of the reasons you can't use a lot of VPNs for, for you know, uh, watching iPlayer and the BBC or Netflix in another country. You can't get around these geographic restrictions because they say, oh, yeah, it's a VPN IP address. That's really the only way they know if you're on a VPN. So you want a VPN provider, ExpressVPN, that, that rotates those addresses, that invests in bandwidth, that makes it possible to use the VPN without feeling like you're hobbling yourself. And of course, and this is a given, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network traffic. So when you're on a public Wi-Fi or anywhere, when we're on the cruise ship, you better believe I'll be using ExpressVPN. You're visible to everybody else on that cruise ship. You can put it on everything, your phone, your laptop, your, uh, your smart TV. You can even put it on many routers, which means the whole house can be protected by ExpressVPN. And it's so simple to turn on. You, it, you know, you press the big button on the ExpressVPN app, and it will automatically go to the fastest, nearest server. But if you want to be in the UK to watch, you know, Doctor Who on Netflix, you could say, no, 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 I want to be in the UK. They'll, you'll go down to the London docks. You'll be there. And, you know, BBC iPlayer works with ExpressVPN. It's kind of an amazing thing. Netflix works with ExpressVPN. I should also mention ExpressVPN goes the extra mile. And this is something Steve's always talking about, to prevent logging. They do not log, of course. It says that in the privacy statement. But you'll be glad to know if you look at the technical details, they go the extra mile. They have this open source trusted server that they use that is sandboxed, runs in RAM. It, uh, it gets created when you go there. As soon as you close the VPN connection, it's only for you. It goes away. No trace is left. Uh, they also use a, a custom Debian uh, distro, and, and it's refreshed and rebooted. The whole hard drive is wiped on a daily basis. I mean, they just they do all the things you would want somebody to do to, who's trying to protect your privacy. Express VPN. So protect your online activity. Stymie data brokers. 
Watch Doctor Who. Do all the things you like best. ExpressVPN.com slash security. Now you get three months free with a one-year plan, but you've got to go to ExpressVPN.com slash security now. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-VPN.com slash security now. Find out more. Read up all about it. And there's also, I should put a link in the show notes, a very good bleeping computer uh, write-up on ExpressVPN and the technologies they use to protect you. It's, it's really impressive. Uh, they really go the extra mile. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for supporting Steve. Picture of the week time, Steve Arino. So this is a visual feast. Um, ah. Unfortunately, it's it would be difficult for me to explain it in words. Um, well, that's why there's those, a picture. That, for the, for, yeah, that's a very good point. For those who who do have the uh, the show notes in front of them, th- there's a. The, the, uh, as I described at the beginning, and I gave it a title, a wonderful mechanical or gate. If you, <laughs> if you, oh, Leo, it's just so good. If if you imagine that you that six different people had six different keys to six different padlocks. Now, if you wanted to, if you wanted to allow any one of them to unlock, for example, a gate that was secured with a chain. Well, you could interlace, you, you could interlock six padlocks, you know, the hasps of six padlocks through each other, right, to sort of create one long padlocky thing such that it, any one of the keys could unlock its one padlock. And because it was a chain of padlocks, that would unlock the whole chain. The problem we have here, though, is that this thing that's being secured? There's a, there's a big steel arm coming like in a from the left, or something. Yeah. yeah, and and it wants to come. It wants to slide outwards. So there there isn't really a way you can do that with inter with with interlinking hasps of padlocks. So some mechanical engineer. I mean, this is just so cool. I, I, the more I looked at it for a while, the this better is brilliant. I liked it. So, and, and unlocking and, any one of these padlocks opens the gate. Yes, it, it is an. It is that. Well, I guess it would be an and, wouldn't it? Because they all have to be closed for it to be work to for it to work. Any one of them being opened, or you know, it I mean, just depends whether the true ways. value is unlocked or locked. Right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's so, a or if it's unlocked. Uh, it's an and if it's locked. Right. <laughs> and uh, but what's so cool is that if, I mean, again, I, there's no way to describe it except to say that it's this wonderful mechanism where any one of these locks, like one of the, one, one one at the bottom, you would unlock one at the bottom. Eighteen that or then, fifteen. Uh, yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. Uh, that would allow the 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 shim to be removed from a pin, which then allows the pin to slide out, with the little pin at the bottom, which then allows the big pin, at, the, the, the big vertical pin to be uh, lifted out of the way of the lever that wants to come out. So it's this multi-stage it's locking mechanism. Clever. It's really good. I'm not sure. And, I understand uh, how 15 and 18. So if I take 15 or 18 out, then that means, oh, I can I can slide this bigger bar out and then slide this little pin out right yeah yeah you just kind of have to be there to, and, and certainly and then can't the, describe and then, it, the, yeah. and then the big one comes as i said there's really no way to describe it except to right. you know it, it's analogous to a chain of six of six locks that are you know interlinked but in a way that works with this particular 
mechanism. Anyway, it's just wonderful, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So yeah. whoever that was, a, a listener of ours who said, what do you think about this for a picture of the week? It's like, oh, <laughs> wow. right on. Wow, wow, wow. That is, that is dead on the money. That's our kind of, that's our kind of picture. Okay, so open SSL version 3.0.4 introduced a serious vulnerability, which version 3.0.5 just repaired. Uh, it is a potential remote code execution flaw, which was recently discovered in an update, that is this 304, to the V3 branch of OpenSSL. The issue was found, as I said, in 3.0.4. The good news is it was just released late last month on June 21st. Um, it impacts X. 64, so 64-bit Intel architecture systems having the AVX512 instruction set extension. Uh, the good news is OpenSSL version 1.1.1, as well as the, the two forks, Boring SSL and Libre SSL, they're not affected. So only the three branch. The trouble stems from a remote memory corruption vulnerability. Uh, these, the, this AVX are the advanced vector extensions, which add instructions to the x86 instruction set architecture uh, from, arc, from processors both from Intel and AMD. Um, there was some interesting back and forth about this in the GitHub issue thread, uh, where uh, I think that the OpenSSL Foundation's guy, uh, Tomas Mraz, he, he, he said, I do not think this is a security vulnerability. Of course, you know, he didn't want it to be. He said, it is just a serious bug <laughs> making the version 3.0.4 release unusable on AVX 512 capable machines. Okay. So I guess he's saying that it will crash, but so like the certificates, it involved RSA certificates, so they won't work, but so that's a problem. Uh, a security researcher, uh, Guido Vrinken, he said that he said it can be triggered trivially by an attacker. Another person participating in the thread, Alex Gaynor, wrote, I'm not sure I understand how it's not a security vulnerability. It's a heap buffer overflow that's triggerable by things like RSA signatures, which can easily happen in remote contexts, like he says, a TLS handshake. Uh, and the post-grad PhD student who originally discovered and reported the bug chimed in to the thread, stating, he said that, quote, he says, although I think we shouldn't, as in should not, mark a bug as security vulnerability, in quotes, unless we have some evidence showing it can, or at least may, be exploited, he says it's necessary to release version 3.0.5 as soon as possible, given the severity of the issue, which is what did, in fact, soon happen. The issue has been assigned CVE 2022-2274, described in that CVE as a case of a heap memory corruption within RSA private key operations. The advisory notes the quote, SSL slash TLS servers or other servers using 
2048 bit RSA private keys running on machines supporting AVX 512 IFMA instructions of the x86-64 architecture are affected by the issue. And calling it a serious bug in the RSA implementation, but still apparently not wishing to call it a vulnerability, the maintainers of OpenSSL said that the flaw could lead to memory corruption during computation that could be weaponized, sounds like a vulnerability to me, by an attacker to trigger remote code execution on the machine performing the computation. So anyway, as I said, (laughs) smacks of a security vulnerability. Well, anyway, uh, the flaw has been patched and all users of OpenSSL v3 should move to 3.0.5, especially if you had diligently moved to 3.0.4, which is the buggy release. On the other hand, the window was a couple weeks, so the chances are nobody even had a chance to get the buggy one before you got the good one. So anyway, just FYI. Okay, last Tuesday, the U.S. Uh, NIST, right, our National Institute of Standards and Technology, announced that the results of a six-year, these things do take a while, and I'm glad this is not something you want to rush because we're going to be living with this for a long time. The six-year competition among a set of post-quantum algorithms had resulted in the selection of four initial algorithms. That is because there are going to be a total of eight. So the first half have now been chosen. After editing out the various self-congratulatory statements from various bureaucrats who have no clue what this is all about and who certainly didn't even write what they are quoted as saying in NIST's official announcement. I read through this as like, oh, come on. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've always been a fan of elliptic curve cryptography. And <laughs> That's I, right. I, I, I use it to clean my sheets every <laughs> every week. Uh, so here's what the, the, uh, the, the people who actually wrote something about this and were involved in the choosing had to say. They said, the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, has chosen the first group of encryption tools that are designed to withstand the assault of a future quantum computer, which could potentially crack the security used to protect privacy in the digital systems we rely on every day, as in today, such as online banking and email software. The four selected encryption algorithms will become part of NIST's post-quantum cryptographic standard expected to be finalized in about two years. The announcement follows a six-year effort managed by NIST, but like not in any way poisoned by them. This has all been done open on GitHub in full public view, managed by NIST, which in 2016 called upon the world's cryptographers to devise and then vet encryption methods that could resist an attack from a future quantum computer, that is, you know, one with more than four qubits, that is more powerful than the comparatively limited machines available today. Uh, 
Today's selection constitutes the beginning of the finale of the agency's post-quantum cryptography standardization project. And this is clearly a good thing. You know, they, I don't remember, Leah, whether they were able to f- f- do the f- factorization of, what was it, 33 it or something? some ridiculous uh, number. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, okay. Oh, how hard we, is we that, have, huh? We don't, have to, we don't have to worry about it right now. I have uh, to say, we are making progress. So, uh, I, this was a story a couple of days ago that scientists in Germany have showed spooky action at a distance of 20 miles, uh, Ooh, two atoms. So that's when wow. the... That's when you know the quantum entanglement. Yeah, quantum entanglement, and the the two atoms somehow are communicating instantaneously across a distance of twenty miles. Not at light speed. Much faster. Instantaneously. Yeah, yeah. Which tells tells you, you know, definitely a simulation. Okay. (laughs) Or there's some dimension we don't know about in which those two atoms are right next to each other, or are the same thing, or the same thing, or idea of space. Could be just an illusion, right. right? There isn't actually any. It's, it's just it's mind-boggling that they're it is, that they're doing it. This. Does, I mean, it, it does it hurts? It hurts. Yes, it hurts. Yes. Uh, okay. Four additional algorithms are under consideration still for inclusion in the standard, and NIST plans to announce the finalists from that round at a future date. NIST is announcing its choices, they wrote, in two stages because of the need for a robust variety of defense tools. As cryptographers have recognized from the beginning of NIST's effort, there are different systems and tasks that use encryption. And a useful standard would offer solutions designed for different situations. And that's, yes, you know, how many times have we, we talk about the toolbox that we have today and how cool it is that you can just put these things, these little components together in all different ways. Um, so... Uh, use varied approaches for encryption and offer more than one encry- one algorithm for each use case in the event one proves vulnerable, and that's what they've done here. Uh, you know, this is like we're. It feels like we're beginning to understand collectively. You know, as a planet how to do these sorts of things correctly. So explaining this for the masses, NIST added encryption uses math to protect sensitive electronic information, including the secure websites we surf and the emails we send. Widely used public key encryption systems, which rely on math problems that even the fastest conventional computers find intractable, ensure these websites and messages are inaccessible to unwelcome third parties. However, a sufficiently capable quantum computer which would be based on different technology than the conventional computers we have today, could solve these math problems quickly to defeat today's encryption systems. To counter this threat, the four quantum-resistant algorithms rely on math problems that both conventional and quantum computers should have difficulty solving thereby defending privacy both now and down the road. Okay, I got a tough question for you. Do we now trust NIST? Because remember, they intentionally recommended a weak algorithm at the behest of the national security agencies. Yeah, and I would say those were days 
gone by. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's no cryptographer who doesn't know that this this you know this random bit generator that the RSA that RSA Corporation was sort of defaulting to had some had some sketchy background you know mm. there there was there was no reason for the NSA not to describe where the magic numbers came from that 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 digital random bit generator used but and and that would have made everyone feel good if somebody had said this is how we chose these numbers then everyone would have gone okay that makes sense instead it was thou shalt use these numbers yeah. And it was like uh, that's not the way we do things here. So, and you know, it, and, and the point is, it wasn't the way. It sort of was the way we did things then because nobody was that focused on those things. Now we really are. So I don't think that could ever happen again. Uh, I mean, and so so this is a th- th- this was done very much like the way Reindahl was chosen, where a number of like really good candidates were examined and and sample implementations code was created and things like how fast can we make this work on a 64-bit x you know 64 architecture and can we can we design algorithms which will not be subject to to side channel attacks i mean just think about everything we've learned in the last 20 years all of that is now rolled into this and you know, lots of debate. That's why it took six years, uh, you know, to, to decide this. So <clears throat> in this case, these first four of the eight total algorithms, the first four are designed for two main tasks for which, as we know, encryption of or crypto is typically used. General encryption, which is used to protect information exchanged across a public network and digital signatures used for identity authentication. All four of the algorithms were created by academic experts collaborating openly from multiple countries and institutions. To provide for general encryption, NIST, and it's, it's not NIST as much as it's the, the collective, and that's just it. NIST is sort of just sort of saying, yeah, you know, we're going to do the press release. But it was this, it wasn't NIST that chose it, is I guess by, is the point. It was everybody coming to an, a final agreement that, okay, to do encryption, we're going to use the Crystal's Kyber algorithm, which is what was chosen for encryption. Uh, and, um, and it was chosen because it uses comparatively small encryption keys, which two parties will be able to exchange easily, as well as very good speed of operation. On the digital signatures side, NIST and the collective selected three algorithms. I like this first one. I do too, Leo. <laughs> it's the dilithium crystals algorithm. <laughs> yes. We've got – and then we also have Falcon and we have Sphinx. Uh, it's actually Sphinx Plus because there was some tweaking that was done later. So it's S-P-H-I-N-C-S plus sign, which we're supposed to read as Sphinx Plus. Uh, reviewers noted the high efficiency of the first two. And NIST recommends Crystal's Dilithium to be used as the primary algorithm, 
with Falcon for applications that need smaller signatures than dilithium is able to provide. The third, and this is, again, why the thinking was so good on this, Sphinx Plus is somewhat larger and slower than the other two. But it's valuable to have as a backup for the reason that it is based on entirely different math than all of the other three NIST selections. The other ones are based on lattice math and Sphinx isn't. So again, we've learned that where crypto is concerned, there's nothing wrong with using a belt and some suspenders. Uh, As I said, the first three of the four selected algorithms are based on a family of math problems known as structured lattices, which is why the word crystal appears as part of the names of the first two, while Sphinx Plus uses hash functions. Now, the next four algorithms to be chosen, which are still under consideration, are designed for general encryption and do not use structured lattices or hash functions in their approaches. So, again, we're going to do like we're looking at a variety of different solutions to like in advance. And and once we deploy these, all of them will be selectable in the various algorithms so that if something is found to be wrong, it'll be like, whoops, and it'll be easy to just, you know, switch over. Or remember how the early versions of TrueCrypt allowed you to use like multiple different algorithms like at once under the theory that, well, if one of them was broken, then, you know, the other ones would would still be good. So anyway, we, we, we sort of have a little bit of that too. So NIST wrote, While the standard is in development, NIST encourages security experts to explore the new algorithms. Oh, all the source is public, by the way, and and, and posted online. And that's why we shouldn't worry about NIST being involved in this, obviously. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, they really weren't. They were, again, based on, Leo, that text that I excluded from the announcement, you would know that whoever it was who wrote that Senator Foghorn Leghorn (laughs) believes that crystal lattices are the finest way to protect yourself. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Boy. So they said, while the standard is in development, NIST encourages security experts to explore the new algorithms to consider how their applications will use them, but not to bake them into their systems quite yet, as the algorithms could change slightly before the standard is finalized. Can we use these uh, if they're not baked? I mean, can we use them now? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, they've been pounded. They've had the crap pounded out of them yeah, already. They're pretty well baked. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's it's likely that they're pretty much. But they're yeah. just, you know, again, they're hedging their bets. They don't want to be like have fingers pointed at them saying, hey, you said these were final right. and we burned it into our firmware yes. and sent it up into outer space. So it's like, no, OK, you don't, yeah, you know, don't, don't do, do that, that quite don't yet. Don't do that. So you but know, e- uh, what tools Elon like my is PG- welcome to use them <laughs> yes, right now. Use them all you want, Elon. Uh, uh, PGP or, I mean, what kind of tools? TLS, I guess. Yes? Would it be? Yeah, yeah. Um, Basically, you know, our crypto uses signatures all over the place and uses encryption all over the place. Yeah, I use PGP for that, which, of course, is an ancient and kind of crapulous bundle of algorithms, none of which are these. Yeah, we could hope... That PGP does not incorporate these. 
<laughs> so that once quantum computing comes along, eh, sorry, PGP, yeah. it's uh, your, your time is back. SSH, though, would probably implement it, uh, I would imagine. Oh, oh I, there, well, yeah, you mean, uh, yeah, TLS definitely would. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it'll be used for hashing. And, I mean, like a next-generation set of functions, the idea being that these assuming the big quantum machines actually do happen and again it's like these are fast enough that there's no reason not to switch over to them and that's the point right at some point because remember the other danger that we've talked about is that things that are encrypted today cannot be decrypted today but they could be decrypted tomorrow so so th- this is why the NSA has that massive facility in Nevada, where which is why Vegas's lights are dimmer now than they used to be, is that the, the NSA is just storing everything. They're like, well, we can't encrypt it yet, but we think that once quantum comes along, we'll be able to retroactively decrypt all this crap that we've been storing. So let's just keep it because storage doesn't cost anything. So the point is we want to switch over to post-quantum crypto as soon as we know that we can trust it, assuming that it's not going to be a lot slower, and these algorithms are not slower than the ones we have. They're just bigger and different. Um, we want to switch over so that we so that we start giving the NSA stuff that, oh, sorry about that, but uh, this is the dilithium crystal quantum. <laughs> I love it. Crypto and uh, your SOL. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um and by the now, way, you can't crack these dilithium crystals. <laughs> so I, I obviously have no problem with the idea that adopting advanced post-quantum cryptography under the name dilithium crystals will is like what we ended up with. Mm-hmm, but I have mm-hmm. to say, Leo, that in scanning through all of the candidate entries from which these four winners were selected, I did breathe a sigh of relief. When I saw that the quantum algorithm named Frodo <laughs> had not won, I, I would have a hard time yeah. choosing Frodo no. you know, as my I, post-quantum <laughs> solution. I refuse to use an algorithm with hairy toes. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Thank you. On yes. that note, I'm going to take a sip of water. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about Yubico. Adrian in the chat room says... You mean dilithium's a real thing? I thought it was just uh, some fictional Star it's Trek. It's real thing. now, baby. It is it now. Is real now. Congratulations, you have entered the dilithium zone. Uh, our show today brought to you by. Let me find out who it's brought to you by. That's what I need to do. Oh, I know what I did wrong. I should never use Bing for a browser. Oh, it, Lori keeps telling, saying me, "How can I get rid of this thing? It keeps coming back. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it." I hate Bing. Uh, Our show today brought to you by Tanium. Now you know why we need Tanium, right? The industry's approach to cybersecurity has, you know, kind of a fundamental flaw. IT management and security point tools only offer a small piece of the solution that you need to protect your environment. And many of them say, oh, we can stop all breaches they, when they, they absolutely can't. They absolutely can't. Uh, you need to be making decisions on up-to-date data, not stale data. You, 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 can't, you can't defend your critical assets from cyber attacks with tools that just don't talk to each other. 
That's just no way for IT teams these days to navigate the modern attack surface. It's time for a better approach, a different approach. And Tanium is one of those young disruptors that is changing the way we think about security. They say it's time for a convergence of tools, endpoints, and IT ops and security. They've got solutions for every sector, government entities, education, financial services, retail, healthcare. You can trust their solutions for every workflow that relies on endpoint data. And all in one, you get asset discovery and inventory, so you know instantly exactly what assets, what IT assets you have. They've got risk and compliance management, which means you can find and fix vulnerability at scale and instantly. I mean, really, literally seconds. They've got very powerful threat hunting, which lets you hunt for uh, sophisticated adversaries in real time. Client management automates operations from discovery to management. Sensitive data monitoring, because after all, the data is what's important, right? You can index and monitor sensitive data globally in seconds and know when it's been changed, when it's been modified, when it's not all there. Tanium protects organizations where other endpoint management and security providers have failed. One platform, Tanium identifies where all your data is across your entire IT estate, can patch every device you own in seconds, can implement critical security controls all from a single pane of glass. Just ask Tanium users like uh, Kevin Bush, vice president of IT at Ring Power Corp. He says, quote, Tanium brings visibility to one screen for our whole team. If you don't have that kind of visibility, you're not going to be able to sleep at night. With real-time data comes real-time impact. If you're ready to unite operations and security teams with a single source of truth, confidently protect your organization from cyber threats, it's time you met Tanium. T-A-N-I-U-M. To learn more, visit Tanium.com slash twit. Tanium.com slash twit. Because there's no way to be secure with silos, right? Break those silos down between operations and security with Tanium. Tanium.com slash twit. Please use that URL so they know you heard it here. Uh, and we thank Tanium so much for supporting security now. Back to you, Steve. So, um, to help Ukraine hold off Russia's uh, cyber attacks, Ubico donated 30,000 Fido Ubikis. Bravo. I know. I thought that was so neat. Uh, I just, I just, I just happened to see it in passing. So far, more than half of those thirty thousand, around sixteen thousand Yubikis, have been deployed to Ukrainian government executives, workers, and employees of private companies in Ukraine's critical sectors. The initiative is being coordinated by a company named Hides H I D E E Z which, you know, I guess ID as an identity, Heidi's, uh, they're a Ukrainian security firm specializing in identity services and FIDO consultancy. So they know their way around FIDO. Earlier this spring, Heidi secured a donation of 30,000 Yubikis from Yubico. And way to go, Stina. Since then, Heidi's staff has been working with Ukrainian government agencies like the Ministry of Digital Transformation, the National Security and Defense Council, and the, the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, that's the SSSCIP <laughs> of Ukraine, to ensure the devices can be... And it's one thing to have Yubikis, right? But you got to know 
what to do with them. So they're ensuring that the devices can be imported into the country, that government infrastructure is prepared for the YubiKeys rollout, and that, recip- and that the recipients receive the necessary training to know how to use them. So the idea is that once government and critical sector workers have a security key as an extra layer of protection, their accounts would finally be safe from what amounts to an onslaught of nonstop spear phishing attacks, which have been constantly hitting their inboxes every day. Yuri Ackerman, uh, VP of War Efforts at Heidi Heidi's, told the uh, the publication Risky Business. Uh, he said, "We got YubaKey certified, so they are allowed to be deployed into Ukraine instances." He said, "We have quite a few inst- of quite a few ministries that have moved a lot of their stuff to G Suite and Azure. With them, it's quite easy. We just give them a key. We made instructions in Ukrainian, video instructions, and so on. So it's really fast." We had a department that pretty much moved to using FIDO like 500 people in less than a week because they just needed to understand their policies, read our documentation, and that's it. They just give the keys and roll them and voila. So meanwhile, efforts are underway to roll out the keys to individuals in other departments. You know, they still have, what, 17,000 of them available or 14,000 rather including those without the proper server-side infrastructure. In these cases, Ackerman says, Heidi's has been providing the government with the company's solutions at minimal costs. Anyway, as I said, I just happened upon this nice bit of news. and wanted to acknowledge what Yubico had done to help uh, Ukraine in their war effort. Is FIDO related to Paskey's FIDO 2? Yes. FIDO was the original, and that was the one which didn't get off the ground because it absolutely is tied to a hardware token, whereas FIDO 2, uh, you're allowed to use uh, uh, you know, devices that, uh, that have some sort of biometrics. In but order same to do the concept, unlocking. really. Yes, yeah. yes, same concept. Cool. <clears throat> so uh, Apple's new... Oh, I, I should I should mention though also that Fido two uses Web N also as its as its protocol to the web server, whereas Fido does is not a Web N user. Oh, okay. So you have to have specific uh, specific support for for Fido on on the right. server side, right. which is why Heidi's is having to to use bring in some of its own technology where that's not available. Got it. So Apple's new extreme lockdown mode, and extreme is their word, which I thought was kind of fun. In a blog post last Wednesday, Apple took the wraps off of lockdown mode, which will be rolled out later this year. Uh, first seen in Mac OS Ventura, uh, iOS 16, and iPad OS 16. Uh, this is an optional mode, which will, in again, in their words, severely restrict some features. I mean, it's they've gone to a great degree here. I guess on one hand, it's selling the idea that it is so restrictive, but they're also like making it clear that eh, we're not sure that this is for everybody. So you know, if you were to turn this on, be prepared for a bunch of stuff not to work. Um, the aim is to protect 
specifically highly targeted individuals such as human rights workers and researchers by reducing their devices available attack surface. So, you know, and they provided in their announcement a screenshot where, like, this is the screen where you would go to turn this on. And it says, lockdown mode is an extreme optional protection that should only be used if you believe you may be personally targeted by a highly sophisticated cyber attack. Most people are never targeted by attacks of this nature. Then they said the second paragraph, when iPhone is in lockdown mode, it will not function as it typically does. Apps, websites, and features will be strictly limited for security, and some experiences will be completely unavailable. And then they've got a button to learn more, or (laughs) this big scary one at the bottom, Turn on lockdown mode. So uh, the way Apple put this in their announcement, and they, they used a term I hadn't seen before. I thought it was interesting. They said Apple expands industry-leading commitment to protect users from highly targeted mercenary spyware. Mm. <laughs> they said Apple is previewing a groundbreaking security capability that offers specialized additional protection to users who may be at risk of highly targeted cyber attacks from private companies developing state sponsored mercenary spyware. Wow. Yeah. Apple, they said, Apple Today detailed two initiatives to help protect users who may be personally targeted by some of the most sophisticated digital threats, such as those from private companies developing state-sponsored mercenary spyware. Okay, we get the message, Apple. Lockdown mode, the first major capability of its kind coming this fall with iOS 16, iPadOS 16, and macOS Ventura, is an extreme Optional protection for the very small number of users who face grave (laughs) targeted threats to their digital security. Apple also shared details of about about the $10 million cybersecurity grant it announced last November to support civil society organizations that conduct mercenary spyware threat research and advocacy. In other words, you know, researchers who were like going to dig into what this is all about. They said Apple's head of security engineering and architecture was quoted. Apple makes the most secure. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Mobile devices on the market. (laughs) You can always tell when you're reading from an Apple press release. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Lockdown mode, he said, is a groundbreaking capability that reflects our unwavering commitment to protecting users from even the rarest, most sophisticated attacks, parens, which we're unable to block. Okay, he didn't really say that. While the vast majority of users will never be the victims of such highly targeted cyber attacks, we will work tirelessly to protect the small number of users who are. 
That includes continuing to design defenses specifically for these users, as well as supporting researchers and organizations around the world doing critically important work in exposing mercenary companies that create these digital attacks. Lockdown mode, he said, offers an extreme optional level of security for the very few users. Who, uh, you know, and they're like, they really don't want you to turn this on, but they want you to feel very special if you do because of who they are or what they do. May be personally targeted by some of the most sophisticated digital threats, because after all, otherwise it wouldn't get through the regular iOS security, such as those from, oh, and we're, we're naming names, the NSO Group and other private companies developing state-sponsored mercenary spyware. Turning on lockdown mode in iOS 16 and iPad OS 16 and Mac OS Ventura, you might as well just turn off your device. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, further hardens device defenses and strictly limits certain functionalities, sharply reducing, and I actually believe in this a lot, the attack surface that potentially could be exploited by highly targeted mercenary spyware. Okay, so at launch, lockdown mode includes the following protections. We have five. Messages. Most message attachment types, other than images, are blocked. Some features, like link previews, are disabled because, yes, those could be abused. Web browsing. Certain complex web technologies, Bravo, Apple, like just-in-time JavaScript compilation. Remember, we saw Microsoft experimenting with disabling that in Edge because it just seems to be where all the problems are. Just-in-time JavaScript compilation are disabled unless the user excludes a trusted site from lockdown mode. Third, Apple services, incoming invitations and service requests, including FaceTime calls, are blocked if the user has not previously sent the initiator a call or a request. Wired connections with a computer or accessory are blocked when iPhone is locked. And maybe you guys talked about this over on MacBreak. I'll ask you about that in a second, Leo. And finally, configuration profiles cannot be installed and the device cannot enroll into mobile device management while lockdown mode is turned on. So... To my eye, these all sound like very useful and sane restrictions. You bet. They would not hugely impact even most users, I think, while they would very clearly and significantly restrict the device's attack surface. So I say bravo, Apple. Nice going. I'm sure that they've closely looked at the history of the way their devices have been compromised and then took steps to address future threats in a way that will keep their devices useful and usable while being far less easily compromised. So again, bravo. So, Leo, that fourth thing, wired connections with a computer or accessory are blocked when iPhone is locked. This is how I interpreted it, and and the panel seemed to agree. Uh... That's so that you can charge but not have a data connection with a USB port, right? So it's to prevent you from plugging oh, your iPhone into okay. some strange port and actually allows you to do so. 
It's like your uh, USB condom, I think. So, because yes, what happens normally with an iPhone when you plug in a USB cable to a device, it says, "Do you trust this device?" You say yes, and now you can exchange data. This, right. which is obviously risky. That's so. very, very. I think smart. it's good. So it's a built-in, a built-in condom. Yeah, for your a built-in for your condom. That's how Apple port. should sell it. I think. Yeah. Uh, a, a rubber for your phone. Most of you will not need a built-in <laughs> condom, but I had a question about the just-in-time uh, stuff. Didn't we talk about that at one point? That Google's research showed that just-in-time JavaScript uh, was problematic. Yeah, it was Microsoft that Microsoft. was doing this because now they have Bing, and, and as we know, Bing is now uh, is now uh, based on the chromium engine and so it was it was their analysis that showed i think it was 80 percent eight zero percent of the of the problems that they were seeing in javascript resulted from tiny flaws in the in in this like squeezing the last every last bit of performance out of javascript and what they were saying was, you know, maybe five years ago, ten years ago, computers were still slow. I mean, remember back then we didn't want to use encryption right. because it slowed it slow. down things. Yeah, yeah. It was too it was yeah. too slow. Now it's like, bring on, we're gonna go quantum, baby. We're gonna do dilithium encryption. So, you know, so anyway, th- th- so Microsoft said, Hey, just turn this off and you're gonna be automatically protected from eighty percent of the problems that we're having. So Apple is saying the same thing. And it's not like turning off JavaScript. It's just turning off the JIT compiler or JIT JIT playback. So you, frankly, uh, maybe would run a little slower, probably not on a modern machine. And it eliminates a lot of those security flaws. So I think that's – I agree with you. This didn't seem too onerous. No. You know, Google has has their, you know, superior uh, security where you have to have two Titan keys and all of that. I tried that for a while. And you lose so many, so much functionality from <laughs> Google that wasn't wasn't worth doing it. But I I could see turning this on for a normal person. I'm going to turn it on. Yeah, and see I how it too. feels because, yeah. like, why not? And and you know, I'll bet that would be. You know, they're going to have some telemetry. I'll bet it'll be some interesting metrics that they're going to get back about how many people go. Yeah, you yeah. know, I don't need. I all forgot that crap I turned it on. You know, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's all the things that people do that are dangerous, like links and messages and the message rendering engines. I also use my security now knowledge on MacBreak Weekly about that because we talked about, you know, this is where you see a lot of flaws uh, on yep. Windows as well as on, uh, on Apple products with this interpreter that has to somehow render this this content in, um, in messages. And it's often a, yep. a security issue. Yep. Okay, so uh, as you said... It's already the case that Mike, that Microsoft is not going to do what they said they were going to do last week, which it really uh, confused you know, the hell out of people, <laughs> caused such a hubbub. Uh, although uh, the, the uh, Paul Ducklin, who was who who writes for Sophos. Uh, I, I loved what he said about this, uh, and I'm, I'll, I'll share it just because it's a great blast from the past. So. Uh, so, so, so that everyone understands, uh, uh, this this macro abuse that we've suffered for so long 
I remember when they announced it at the beginning of the year, Leo, you and I back in February were, were, were looking at the notice bars that used to be and that would be where it was so easy for you to like click on allow macros. And so, like, you know, edit, you, you'd get some piece of email and it would say, oh, this is not going to display properly unless you allow macros. Click here. It's like, who would not click that? Of course you would, because, you know, it's like telling you to click it. And so Microsoft was said, oh, no, OK, we realize this has been causing lots of problems. We're going to we're going to turn this off. So what shocked everybody was when they said, uh, we're not going to tell you why. And they actually refused to to tell people why exactly they changed their mind, but they announced last week they were going to do that anyway. So, so in, in, in Sophos, Paul said, "Remember, nineteen ninety nine. Well, he's, he said the Melissa virus called, oh, and yeah. it's finding it's finding life tough in twenty twenty two. He said it's demanding a return to the freewheeling days of the last millennium when office macroviruses didn't face the trials and tribulations they do today. He said in the 1990s, you could insert VBA and he said, you know, Visual Basic for Applications macro code into documents at will, email them to people and or ask them to download them from a website somewhere and then you could just totally take over their computer. In fact, it was even better or worse than that if you created a macro subroutine with a name that mirrored one of the common menu items such as file save or file print, then your code would magically and invisibly be invoked Whenever the user activated that option, worse still, if you gave your macro a name like auto open, then it would run every time the uh, document was opened. Uh, yuck. I know. <laughs> Just like, how did we survive, Leo? Yeah. And he says, even if the user only wanted to look at it. And if you installed your macros into a central repository known as the global template, your macros would automatically apply all the time. Worst of all, perhaps an infected document would implant macros into the global template, thus infecting the computer. And the same macros, when they detected they were running from the global template, but the document you just opened was uninfected, could copy themselves back out again to that document. <sighs> he, he said that led to regular perfect storms of fast-spreading and long-running macrovirus outbreaks. Simply put, once you'd opened one infected document on your computer, every document you opened or created thereafter would, or at least could, get infected as well. Until you had nothing but infected office files everywhere. Everywhere. Nice. As you can imagine, he said, at that point in the game, any file you sent or shared with a colleague, customer, pro, uh, prospector, investor, supplier, friend, enemy, journalist, random member of the public would contain a fully functional copy of the virus ready to do its best to infect them when they opened it, assuming they weren't infected already. 
And if that wasn't enough on its own, office macro malware could deliberately distribute itself instead of waiting for you to send a copy to someone by reading your email address book and sending itself to some, many, or all of the names it found there. The first macro malware, which spread by means of infected word files, appeared in late 1995 and was dubbed Concept. Remember that? Because at that time, it was little more than a proof of concept. And we, you know, the concept virus was a thing. That's what it was. But it quickly became obvious that malicious macros were going to be more than just a passing headache. Microsoft was slow to come to the cybersecurity party, carefully avoiding terms such as virus, worm, Trojan horse, and malware, resolutely referring to the concept virus as nothing more than a prank macro. Over the years, however, Microsoft gradually implemented a series of functional changes in Office by incrementally, for example, variously, first, making it easier and quicker to detect whether a file was a pure document, thus swiftly differentiating pure document files and template files with macro code inside. In the early days of macro viruses, back when computers were much slower than today, significant and time-consuming malware-like scanning was needed on every document file just to figure out if it needed scanning for malware. He says Microsoft also made it harder for template macros to copy themselves out into uninfected files. Unfortunately, although this helped to kill off self-spreading macro viruses, it didn't prevent macro malware in general. Criminals could still create their own booby-trapped files up front and send them individually to each potential victim, just as they do today, without relying on self-replication to spread further. He also noted that they, the Microsoft popped up a dangerous content warning so that macros couldn't easily run by mistake. As useful as this feature is, he wrote, because macros don't run until you choose to allow them, crooks have learned how to defeat it. They typically add content to the document that helpfully explains which button to press, often providing a handy graphical arrow <laughs> point, pointing at it. Click allow. Here. Click here, yes, yeah. with a little uh, 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 and giving a believable reason that disguises the security risk involved. And finally, he said adding group policy settings for stricter macro controls on company networks. For example, administrators can block macros altogether in office files that came from outside the network so that users cannot allow, cannot click to allow macros to run in files received via email or downloaded from the web, even if they want to. So he says, at last, in February of 2022, Microsoft announced to size of collective relief from the cybersecurity community that it was planning to turn on the inhibit macros in documents that arrived from the Internet by default for everyone all the time. The security option that used to that once required group policy intervention was finally being adopted as a default setting. 
In other words, as a business, you were still free to use the power of VBA to automate your internal handling of office documents, but you would not, unless you went out of your way to permit it, be exposed to potentially unknown, untrusted, and unwanted macros that weren't from an approved internal source. And of course, yay, as this podcast celebrated at the time, Microsoft described that change then by saying, VBA macros obtained from the Internet will now be blocked by default. For macros and files obtained from the Internet, users will no longer be able to enable content with a click of a button. A message bar will appear for users notifying them with a button to learn more. The default is more secure and is expected to keep more users safe, including home users and information workers in managed organizations. So, you know, everybody was excited about that. Sophos was enthusiastic, too, although a little bit less so than I was at the time. Back then, they said... We're delighted to see this change coming, but it's nevertheless only a small security step for Office users because VBA will still be fully supported and you will still be able to save documents from email or your browser and then open them locally. The changes won't reach older versions of Office for months or perhaps years, given that changes that that given that change dates for Office 2021 and earlier haven't even been announced yet, they wrote. Mobile and Mac users won't be getting this change, and not all Office components are included. Apparently, only Access, Excel, PowerPoint, Visio, and Word will be getting this new setting. On the other hand, that's, you know, that's by far the majority of Office things. So, anyway, Leo, you have the... so. The news I was reporting yesterday was that they decided, uh, well, actually, what Microsoft said last week was following user feedback, we have rolled back this change temporarily, more temporarily than I thought, while we make some additional changes to enhance usability. They said this is a temporary change, and we are fully committed to making the default change for all users. Regardless of the default setting, customers can block Internet macros through the group policy settings described in the article, block macros from running in office files from the Internet. We will provide additional details on timeline in upcoming weeks. And, oh, boy, look at that. So you know what happened, which was they – so until recently – it would be a pop-up that say there's a macro in here, and then be a button that said, yeah, go ahead, run it. And that was yeah. just too easy. So what they were right. going to do is take that button, move it into the properties of the document. So you'd have to know to get the info on the document, go into the properties, check a box, run the macro. And I think pretty clearly what happened is a lot of businesses said, oh, but no, but it's too hard. And we have to train people how to do that. So initially, Microsoft said, oh, okay, we're not going to do that. Now, of course, everybody else has said, no, no, it's too easy. (laughs) And so they've kind of backed off on that. This is, according to the Microsoft blog post, this is the new way to do it. You can see that new. Do you have to click your heel three times? Well, so basically, uh, if there's a macro, a VBA macro in there, this is the decision tree. And wow. if it's from a if if it's from a trusted location, if it's 
digitally signed and trusted publisher, blah, blah, blah. Uh, okay. It used to be that you could use group policy or cloud policy to block or unblock. But now if you haven't, if none of that's true, you get this final flow through where in fact office default macros blocked. So show trust bar security risk with learn more. This is what we were talking about. And then okay. there will be a process. So it looks like they're going to kind of bring that back, but to make businesses happy, there are a Just lot of situations. Be, yeah, allow them to be signed. I yeah. mean, that's going to if it's signed if, if, or if, it's, if, it's, yep. if you open if it was a previously trusted document, you know. So and you'll still have group policy that can default to block or unblock. Um, so I, this actually is Microsoft. Boy. They have to compromise all the time because and business it, it, users, it is, right? Yep. It is so sad though that it is so difficult to turn up the security. Well, and now I mean, you know why. Just, yeah, you know wow. why? Um, no, you know every business says, "Well, yeah, but I don't want to retrain employees. We need those macros. We use them in our, you know, weekly spreadsheet flow, and uh, we don't want to have to have wow. them do all that." So, wow, I think this is this is the process, and it's a good process ultimately, where all yeah. the stakeholders get to weigh in. You and could then you just put you push it in the direction you, you want put, to yes. incrementally, just like Google does, right? And so you can see yep. Microsoft's heart is in the right place. They want to do this, uh, and they're just kind of do it in a way that it doesn't upset people as much as it did, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it should be. You know, for all Microsoft Home users, it should be off, but that's they're not going to do that either. You know. Yeah, you're right. That that would absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, they they rolled back the rollback. Wow. <laughs> That's what TechCrunch's headline is. Is Microsoft reverses its reversal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so uh, Motherboard published an interesting story under the headline, This is the Code the FBI Used to Wiretap the oh, World. Yeah, wasn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. They, and they followed that opening up with a subheading, Motherboard is publishing parts of the code for the Anom encrypted messaging app, which was secretly managed by the FBI in order to monitor organized crime at global scale. And, and you so, nailed it, by the way. You, I know. You figured it out. You figured out how they did it. That's very yeah, smart. Uh, yeah. Well, and I actually talk about that here here in a second. But you're right; they they did it the way I keep saying this is the way you would do it. So, what I thought was interesting uh, is that the approach that Motherboard says the FBI took to pull pull this off was precisely the solution I've often hypothesized as being the you know obvious way in which an end to end multi party messaging system would be compromised. So here, here's how Motherboard's story begins. They said the FBI operation in which the agency intercepted messages from thousands of encrypted phones around the world was powered by what Motherboard described as, actually they had people describing as cobbled together code. Okay, I disagree with the characterization. They used open source code for 
uh, XMP for an XMPP encrypted messaging system. So it's like, okay, you know, I guess you could describe open source as cobbled together. It all kind of is, but okay. Anyway, they said motherboard has obtained that code and is now publishing sections of it that show how the FBI was able to create its honeypot. The code shows that the messages were secretly duplicated and sent to a ghost contact that was hidden from the user's contact lists. This ghost user, in a way, was the FBI and its law enforcement partners reading over the shoulder of organized criminals as they talked to each other. Now, our listeners will recall that this has been my greatest cons- my greatest criticism of any supposedly private and secure system where a user's keys are being in any way managed for them. The reason that Threema's approach has always appealed to me is that the user is 100% responsible for their own key management. And as we've often observed, if you're not managing your own keys, someone or something is managing them for you because the one thing any secure and private instant messaging system needs is keys. The point being, key management must be occurring somewhere. So if it's not something you're doing for yourself, then you don't have any direct control over what's going on. Okay, now that's not to say that I think people should be doing their own key management. You know, when today's podcast is finished, I'll shoot an iMessage to my wife, Lori, and let her know that I'm heading home. My point is, top-level state secrets are not being exchanged in my iMessages. Uh, The fact is, when you get right down to it, no consumer smartphone can really be trusted absolutely. But again, most people don't need that level of secrecy. Anyway, Motherboard continues. They wrote, last year, the FBI and its international partners announced Operation Trojan Shield. I love the name. In which the FBI secretly ran an encrypted phone company called Anom for years and used it to hoover up Tens of millions of messages from Anom users. Anom was marketed to criminals and ended up in the hands of over 300 criminal syndicates. You got to love this worldwide. The landmark operation has led to more than a thousand arrests, including alleged top tier drug traffickers and massive seizures of weapons, cash, narcotics and luxury cars. So, wow, the FBI mounted a good old fashioned high tech sting operation. Good going. But Motherboard doesn't sound very impressed with the FBI's coders. They wrote... Motherboard has obtained the underlying code of the Anom app and is now publishing sections of it due to the public interest in understanding how law enforcement agencies are tackling the so-called going dark problem where criminals use encryption to keep their communications out of the hands of the authorities. Now, okay, I'm unconvinced that there's any true 
public interest here, but okay. You know, mostly motherboard seems to want to embarrass the FBI over what they think is the, the low quality of the code. They wrote, the code provides greater insight into the hurried nature of its development, the freely available online tools that Anom's developers copied for their own purposes, also known as open source, and how the relevant section of code copied the messages as part of one of the largest law enforcement operations ever. They said the app uses XMPP to communicate a long-established protocol for sending instant messages. You know, Jabber uses XMPP. On top of that, Anom wrapped messages in a layer of encryption. XMPP works by having each contact use a handle, they wrote, that in some way looks like an email address. For Anom, these included an XMPP account for the customer support channel that Anom users could contact. Another of these was Bot. <laughs> now, I do think it was a little unartful for them to name the secret account Bot, but okay. Unlike the support channel, Bot hid itself from Anom users' contact lists and operated in the background. According to the code and to photos of active Anom devices obtained by Motherboard, in practice, the app the, the app scrolled through the user's list of contacts, and when it came across the bot account, the app filtered that out and removed it from view. So in that sense, a little bit like having a rootkit. That finding is corroborated by law enforcement files Motherboard obtained, which say that Bot was a hidden or ghost contact that made copies of Anom users' messages. Authorities have previously floated the idea of using a ghost contact to penetrate encrypted communications. In a November 2018 piece published on Lawfare, Ian Levy and Crispin Robinson, two senior officials from UK intelligence agency GCHQ, wrote that, quote, it's relatively easy for a service provider to silently add a law enforcement participant hmm. to a group. Uh-huh. I know, Leo, to a group chat or call and, quote, you end up with everything still being encrypted end to end. But there's an extra end on this particular communication. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the code also shows that in the section that handles sending messages, the app attached location information to any message that is sent to bot. On top of that, the Android manifest.xml file in the app, which shows which permissions an app accesses, includes the permission access fine location, as in fine-grained location. This confirms what Motherboard previously reported after reviewing thousands of pages of, of police files in an Anom-related investigation. Many of the intercepted Anom messages in those documents included the precise GPS location of the devices at the time the message was sent. So, yeah, I mean, this is a golden honeypot uh, operation. 
Motherboard concluded their story by noting that Operation Trojan Shield had been widely successful and that on top of the wave of thousands of arrests, authorities were also able to intervene using the intercepted and cloned messages to stop multiple planned murders. Using a well-established open protocol and open-source software allowed the application to be assembled without excessive cost, and it got the job done. Mm. And I just say, you know, <laughs> well going. I thought, I thought that was, you know, a very nice piece of work. Wow. Okay. We have uh, some closing the loop bits and our final discussion. Let's take our last break, Leo. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm a little parched, and then we'll do that. Delio. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you know now that it's known how to do this, law enforcement can uh, do it all sorts of places. Uh, our show today brought to you by those good folks at Canary. We talk, I have my Canary right here. Let me just show you. It's just a little thing. You might say, well, what good is that? What is that, a hard drive, Leo? looks like a little external hard drive, doesn't it? Well, what good is that, you say? How does that help your security? Well, light, I see the light's on. The light is on, and someone's home. <laughs> the Thinkst Canary, that's, that's who's home. Thinkst, as a, a company, has been helping governments uh, and companies break into systems. They're, they're experts. I guess you'd call that kind of like pen testing, right? And they've taken what they've learned over two decades of teaching companies and militaries and governments how to break into networks and built the Canary, a honeypot that's trivially easy to deploy and yet is going to give you the information you absolutely need because after all, it's one thing to keep people out, but if somebody gets in and and, and they're going to get in eventually... How do you know they're there? On average, it takes a company 191 days to realize there's been a breach. That's more than six months. In some cases, uh, remember the the uh, Starwood hack was years. Sony, it was uh, almost eight months. And in the meanwhile, hackers are roaming your network, exfiltrating documents, information they can use to blackmail you, looking for Weak points, places you back up data, for instance, so they can encrypt that, too, with their ransomware. They don't trigger the ransomware right away. They wait. They, they, they sneak around. They time it perfectly. Unless you've got something like this, the Thinkst Canary. Security is a layered thing. We, I'm, I'm acknowledging that. But this is one of the most important layers. The device that lets you know somebody's in your network. And what's great about the Canary, you don't get a lot of false alarms. You don't get any false alarms. You just get the alerts that matter, and you get them in a way that you want, whether it's email or text message. You get a Canary console with your Canaries. You can, they can notify you through Slack. It supports webhooks, which that means you can notify you in a lot of ways. It supports syslog. A lot of people like to do it that way. You can, there's an API. You could write your own little alerter. And when you get an alert, it's going to tell you. Uh, somebody tried to get into your canary. Here's the login and password they use. This canary, you know, and I've mentioned this before, you can, you can make them look like anything. A SCADA device, a Windows server, a Linux server. You can have them lit up like a Christmas tree or just one or two carefully chosen services. This is a network-attached storage. It's not really, but that's what it looks like to an attacker. It looks like a Synology. It's got a Synology MAC address, a Synology logon uh, page. The attacker has no way of not knowing that's that it's something else. 
No way of knowing that it's something else. Uh, and in the minute they log in, I get the alert saying, hey. Or, and by the way, it will also alert you that somebody's probing the network. And you can create uh, something they call canary tokens, little documents, PDFs, document files, Word documents, spreadsheets, that kind of thing. That scatter around your network. You can make as many as you want. I have, for instance, uh, somewhere an XLS file that says payroll info. You want to make it look like something a bad guy might, oh, I'm a payroll info. I bet you there's some good stuff in there. But the minute he tries to open it, it turns out not an Excel spreadsheet. Nope. It's going to ping my canary, which is going to ping me. This is incredible. This is a great way to feel safe that there's nobody in your network or to know when there is. It's the canary in your coal mine. You can deploy them anywhere you want. They can look like a router, a switch, a NAS server, a Linux box. You can put fake files on them, name them in ways that get hackers' attentions. You can enroll them, enroll them in Active Directory. I love this. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea, and I, I think it's also something you need. Now, let me give you an example of pricing. Canary, you, you know, some banks might have hundreds of them spread out all over. Some smaller businesses might only have a handful of them. Let's say you decide you want five. Five canaries, $7,500 a year. You get five. You get your own hosted console. All the upgrades, the support, the maintenance, free for that year. In fact, if you sit on your canary and you break it, they'll send you a new one right away. No questions asked. All you have to do, by the way, when you're buying your canary, use the offer code TWIT in the How Did You Hear About Us box. That'll take 10% off the top right away, and for the rest of your usage, as long as you want to use it for life. Now, if you're saying, well, okay, but I'd like to try before I buy, no problem. Canary has a two-month money-back guarantee, full refund, so 60 days to see. But I got to warn you, don't be disappointed if you don't hear from your Canary. That's a good thing. That means there's nobody in your network. In fact, I've only heard from my canary once, and it was because somebody put a network-attached storage device on our network that went out and was probing every port. And the canary said, I've just been probed by a device at 10.1.3.72. What? That's inside the network. We went and we looked, and yeah, one of, uh, one of our hosts, Megan, had connected. Uh, well, she was reviewing, uh, I don't know if it was a Western Digital, one of those, you know, MyDrive-type devices, and it went out and looked at every port on the network. Needless to say, we disconnected that device. But that's how I know my canary works. Don't be surprised if you don't hear anything. That's the good news, right? Uh, just go to canary.tools slash twit. Again, the offer code twit gets you 10% off for life. Put that in the how did you hear about us box. These are a must-have, a big, big part of your overall security status. Just having some canaries waiting for a bad guy to get in. Knock on wood, they never will get in, but you don't want to be that company that finds out six months later they've been roaming the network this whole time. If you want to see what others say about Canary, canary.tools slash love. Bunch of tweets from some big names in security. Love Canary. You will too. Canary.tools slash twit. Offer code twit. Don't forget that. Okay, back to Steve. Some uh, feedback. Yeah, we got some great listeners who tweet. Uh, this is uh, at SGGRC, Mark Toms. He said, how should I vet client-side third-party exes I use as part of my web application? How could I verify it's not malicious? Hmm. He says, example, neodynamic.com, JS Print Manager, utility to allow silent printing from a website. 
Uh, and, you know, my go-to is virus total. Um, if I – it's – it is – we've talked about it before. Uh, it is a uh, – something like 70-plus different virus engines uh, look at something. And uh, I, I've uh, – I use it all the time. Uh, you know, if I'm downloading something, like for example, when I'm working on Spinrite, and I'm I'm needing to to do debugging on a, an ancient motherboard that has some strange LAN adapter, I need to get the motherboard on the net. I've got to find the a, a device driver for the LAN adapter. You know, I go on the internet and I'll like find it at like it looks like it's the right thing, but it's like uh, kind of a sketchy site. So I'll take it and you know drop the files on on VirusTotal and have them you know give it a scan. Uh, oftentimes, VirusTotal has seen the exact file that I'm dropping already because what it does is it, the first thing it does is it makes a hash of the file to create a signature and then it just looks at the signature and so it'll say, "Yep, already seen this one." But you can ask it to rescan it just for your own peace of mind if you want to. Anyway. VirusTotal.com, and, you know, it's a free service. Uh, they're getting the benefit of lots of input from people who are wondering what this is. Yeah, and I'm, I know anybody who's listening to the podcast has heard me talk about it often because that's what security researchers use. The, the, and they'll, in fact, if they find something, they're, they're able to go back and look at the first time vi- that somebody else submitted it to VirusTotal in order to get some sense for how long a piece of malware has been roaming around the Internet. So anyway, uh, a great solution for just checking out stuff that you're not sure about. Um, and, you know, free. The price is right. Isaiah uh, tweeting from Boosted37, he said, At SGGRC, you often recommend a separate IoT network from the main one. However, devices like Chromecasts require your phone or tablet to be on the same network as the streaming stick to manage a show. How would you recommend separating those from your main network? That's a good question. I've had the problem myself. I do have stuff, as I've said, on a separate private guest network. Um, I'll just switch my Wi-Fi from one to the other. I don't normally – now, the Chromecast would be more difficult because you're wanting to be using it probably all the time. And I guess I would say that it's a less sketchy device than some $5 plug that you got you know, in a – uh, you know, a flea market or a you know, garage sale somewhere or, or or freshly off of Amazon for that matter. So I, I, the, the, the solution I've used is that, you know, my various devices, my, my iPhone, my iPads, they've got, they know the passwords for both networks and I'm able to switch back and forth between them with relative ease. So in the case of a Chromecast, you may want that to – you may trust it enough for it to run on your main Wi-Fi but not your you know, less trustworthy devices, which you probably also don't need to access on a daily basis. You know, you, you set the schedule for a, a, an outlet or a, a light switch and then you let it go and, you know, until daylight savings time changes. Tom Terrific, he said – you mentioned that you used an Asus router that you really like. Which model 
is it? It's time for me to buy a new router, and I always take your advice. Thanks, Tom. Okay, so I haven't researched routers recently. Uh, it happens that the one I'm using I still like, and that's an Asus RT AC68U. Uh, which is now at version three. So it looks like, you know, it wasn't something that lived for just a short time. Uh, I looked it up. At Amazon tells me that I purchased it from them uh, on uh, in October of 2017. So I know exactly when. That's when I was setting up my life with the woman who became my wife back in October of 2017, almost five years ago. Uh, so... Uh, it's uh, an AC nineteen hundred Wi-Fi gaming router. Uh, you know, again, model RTAC sixty eight U. Looks like it's highly rated on Amazon. Uh, so anyway, that's what I'm using. I don't know that it's the best. Uh, there are cheaper routers. I think it's like one hundred nineteen dollars at the moment for a Prime subscriber. In fact, I think today's Prime Day. Maybe it's even cheaper if you're a, a, a Prime person. I don't know. Anyway, th- that's that one and. Michael Horowitz, who knows his way around routers, uh, he was for years the columnist. I don't know if he still is at Computer World. He did his defensive computing column. Uh, he tweeted, he said, about your Asus router. <laughs> he said, are you sure the networks are isolated? Now, remember, I mentioned that this thing I discovered had either three or four, I don't remember which, three or four guest SSIDs. He said, you might find all the guest SSIDs share the same subnet. He said, I no longer have an Asus router, so can't verify. And actually, if they, if he's thinking them, they might share the same subnet, then I guess I could test that. I was thinking that I'd have to actually try to send data across guest subnets to see if they're individually isolated from each other. But... I should mention also, when I went over to Michael's defensive computing site, that pointed me to his defensing computing checklist. Leo, this is the kind of thing I bet you would like. It's defensivecomputingchecklist.com, but I also made it this week's shortcut of the week. So you can get to it more easily, or at least by typing fewer characters, grc.sc slash 879. Look how tiny the scroll thumb is. This looks like on your page. I think I know why you like this. This is, <laughs> this is uh, pure HTML, baby. It is just the Ain't facts. Ain't no JavaScript baby. here. No, just sir. the facts. But if you scroll, you'll notice that the thumb is not moving down on the right because there. The, this this long page is page. so long. Long page. What it is 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 a page of advice and it is really good advice it's like you know like just all kinds of stuff so i i just think our listeners ought to know about it for their own purposes and also if they want to recommend it to people there's just lots of information there on this massive page grc.sc/879 or DefensiveComputingChecklist.com. It ain't a checklist. And it's just a list. <laughs> it is. You're right. A it's not a checklist. List. It is a long <laughs> list. Just like 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 Michael's collected ideas and thoughts about security over time. It should time. be a book. This would actually, and I'll probably mention it on the radio show because 
There is yep. so much good stuff in here. This is it really is good. really yeah. really yeah. really good stuff. Yeah. Um, also, when I went there at, and at the top of that page, but also his main page, there's a note that he'll be giving a presentation on defensive computing at the Hope Conference in New York City about 11 days from today. Uh, it's actually called A, a New Hope. I'm sure probably. Hope is hackers on planet Earth, just in case. Exactly. (laughs) You didn't know that, yeah. Hackers on planet Earth. Um, And wasn't A New Hope? Yeah. Yeah, the the, the original Star Wars, yeah. The original Star Wars movie. Episode 3, A New Hope. A New Hope. And I'm sure that's what what they're, you know, they're... they're, they're, uh, Well, I think they suspended for a while, so that's probably why. It's The New Hope. I, I think they did because they also talk about I, – I went there in order to, to see what was up, and they talk about this will be their first in-person gathering, yeah. n- no doubt, since the COVID lockdown right, right. mess. So anyway, there is a it, it's a three-day conference. Uh, it's not free. $200 for in-person, all three, or streaming live for 99 This used to be a great, a great hacker conference. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if 2600 a, sponsored it or not. I, I feel like it was related to 2600 at the time, but yeah, and of course that's the famous frequency that uh, right, right. that uh, and hacker was magazine. used was used in order to yeah. to disconnect the the normal communications during a long distance call and drop right. you down to the billing layer right. where you could do a so called phone freaking back in the days. Yeah. Anyway, finally, Simon Dern. Episode four. He said, Sorry, not three. Four. What, what was it, four? I thought, I, yeah, I thought it's it was four because, right. remember, he started that, in the middle. He did four, and five, and six. always bugged the I crap know. out of me. It was like, what? Well, what, was, where, what happened to the first he was, I think he was being clever because, I mean, you don't do that and say, oh, yeah, I'll be definitely making nine of these. Uh, I think he was just being clever, but then it turned out. <laughs> oh, my God. And then we had to put up with the, the first three. Yes. Which were The prequels sad. are not good. Yeah. No. So, anyway, Simon Dern tweeted, there are obviously good reasons for a company to use a VPN for allowing staff to connect remotely. But what are your thoughts on domestic use? Do you use a VPN yourself? And the answer, Simon, is I don't. But that's only because during my daily current life, I'm never needing to get online using OPNs. OPNs is a handy abbreviation. Everyone should keep in mind. stands for Other People's Networks. Um, and, Leo, I, I, I grinned at the beginning of the show because you were talking about being on shipboard and how you would definitely be using a VPN. Uh, if my life involved travel uh, so that I was wanting to be online in airports, in coffee houses and hotels, there's no question that a VPN would be the only way I would feel comfortable getting online when I was not at home. You know, this is... This is much less of a problem today where everything is encrypted over TLS with server authenticating certificates. Back at the start of this podcast, everything was being done over HTTP with a brief switch to TLS only when logging in when you know for login forms and credentials were being exchanged. You know, remember when we used to explain that it was important to verify that the URL of a form's submit button was HTTPS and not just HTTP. Fortunately, we survived that. (laughs) And 
you know, and who knows fire now. sheep and all sorts of other oh my god yes things. yeah yep but it's still true that without universal certificate pinning which i really don't see ever happening or dns sec being used to publish certificates which we're still a long way from there's a vulnerability when a malicious man in the middle could have control over our traffic. It's uncommon, I'm sure, but it's probably still possible for state-level actors to mint their own certificates that our browsers and operating systems will trust without question. It's true that the bad guys could be operating at the other end of a VPN endpoint, although, Leo, your comment about ExpressVPN changing IPs all the time, that's also going to tend to make the the VPN endpoint more diffuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But something about hotel Wi-Fi networking in particular gives me the creeps. I, I, you know, for a long time, it was that it was unencrypted, and you, there's just no way to use a hotel, un- unencrypted hotel Wi-Fi, you know, safely. Uh, and, and I suppose if I was downloading lots of torrent content, I might want to hide that fact from my Internet provider. But I've always found torrents to be more trouble than they're worth. So I don't care whether Cox knows what I do on the Internet. Uh, you know, and if anyone was watching my Internet use, mostly it would just put them to sleep. So not a problem for me. But again, I don't use a VPN during my normal daily life because I'm not traveling. If I were a traveler, then, yeah, VPN, no also, question. I'm or, thinking you're not if li- watching to- a lot of manga and anime stuff on Netflix Japan, mm, that no, kind of I'm thing. Not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not needing to appear to be other than in Southern California. Yeah. Good point. Okay, so the rolling pone, and that begs the question, do you own a Honda? And are you sure it's still parked out in front? Uh, Enterprise security researchers at Star V Lab, maybe it's Star 5 Lab, uh, one using the handle Kevin 2600, of course we know where he got 2600, and the other named Wesley Lee have revealed, as Larry David might say, a pretty, pretty serious vulnerability in Honda's automobile keyless entry systems. It rather trivially allows attackers to remotely unlock and start potentially all Honda vehicles currently existing on the market. It's... It's... It's really, like, sobering. Okay, so it works in a way that's similar to, but much easier to pull off than that recently discovered Bluetooth replay attack, which we talked about not that long ago, affecting some Tesla uh, cars. Um, Both use readily available off-the-shelf SDR software-defined radio equipment, uh, which allowed the researchers to eavesdrop and to capture codes, then broadcast them back to the car in order to gain access. Recall that we talked about this related attack, the one I mentioned, uh, that affected uh, Teslas, and it was very clever. The key fob produced a high-quality, cryptographically unpredictable, pseudo-random sequence of codes, 
which are derived from a monotonically increasing counter, which is then encrypted by an unknown shared secret key. So the vehicle knows the key, so it's able to decrypt the received code to determine whether it's the next code in sequence or at least forward of the key fob counter's last known position. But the primary security feature is that the vehicle will never accept any code that it has seen previously or that is that represents a count behind the most recently seen count that the key fob is known to have. In other words, it will only allow its knowledge of the key fob's counter to be moved forward, never backward. Okay, so this would seem to robustly present, prevent any possibility of a replay attack. But not so in the case we talked about before. What the clever hackers did before was to receive the FOB's code while simultaneously arranging to jam its receipt by the car. The user would, would think, you know, after pressing the button and nothing happened because the, the, code, the car's reception was jammed, they would think, well, okay, whatever. I guess I was too far away or, or who knows. So they would press the key FOB a second time, generate, causing it to generate the next successive code in sequence. Now the hacker would capture the second code while replaying the first code, which the car had never received, and the door would unlock. So the car or the car would start or whatever. And that's, that's the cool part that's so clever. The attacker would have obtained and retained that second code, which had never yet been seen by the car, and would still be available as the next unlocking code in that otherwise unpredictable sequence. Okay, so that was the clever, you know, very active, got to get involved, I mean, a very much man in the middle. You're an active man in the middle, able to jam, you know, on the fly in real time, jam the, the, the receipt of the code by the car. Today, Honda is the target, and their problem is significantly worse, since the attack on Hondas is co almost completely passive and much easier to conduct. The Honda attacking researchers have been able to remotely unlock and start the engines of Hondas, dating from as far back as 2012, so a decade ago, up to and including this year. So nothing's been fixed in the last 10 years. The good news is, according to The Drive, which independently tested and verified the vulnerability on a last year's 2021 Honda Accord, the key fob attack does work, allows the car door to be unlocked and the engine to be started, but the attacker is unable to drive off with the vehicle, though it as I said, can start the engine. Presumably, the car contains some dynamic, continuous key fob presence technology that's able to sense the presence of the key inside the vehicle, 
which at least prevents it from, you know, being drivable. Okay, so the more active attack against Teslas worked the way I just described. What Kevin and Wesley discovered was, as I said, significantly worse because it is so much easier. They found that the counter in Honda's cars would be resynchronized when the car receives lock and unlock commands in a consecutive sequence, even when that sequence is from long ago. This means that Honda's counter can be reset to an earlier state. So by being entered in, by being induced into moving backwards this will cause the car to accept codes from previous sessions that should that should have been forever invalidated after they were used in their write up kevin and wesley said quote by sending the commands in a, in a consecutive sequence to the honda vehicles it will be resynchronizing the counter once the counter is resynced Commands from previous cycles of the counter will work again. Therefore, those commands can be used later to unlock the car at will. They wrote, we've successfully tested the 10 most popular models of Honda vehicles from the year 2012 up to the year 2022 from the attacker's perspective. Therefore, we strongly believe the, the vulnerability affects all Honda vehicles currently existing on the market. Tested and known vulner, vulnerable vehicles include the Honda Civic 2012, the Honda XRV 2018, the Honda CRV 2020, the Honda Accord 2020, the Odyssey 2020, the Inspire 2021, the Fit 2022, the Civic 2022, the VE1 2022, and the Honda Breeze 2022. So bad. Then we have the always entertaining FAQ, from which I will excerpt a couple questions. They asked, why is it called the rolling pone, not a Honda pone? And they answered, because this bug may exist in other brands of vehicles too. Am I affected by the bug? As long as a vulnerable Honda vehicle is in use, it can be abused. Is there an assigned CVE for rolling pone? Yep. 2021-46-145 is the official reference to this bug. Can I detect if someone has exploited this against me? And they wrote, probably not. The exploitation does not leave any traces in traditional log files, but considering the ease of exploitation and attacks leaving no trace, this threat should be taken seriously. Is this a Honda vehicle-only bug? No. Although the main targets for the research is Honda automobiles, we have leads to show the impact of this vulnerability also applies to other car manufacturers. They said we will release more details in the future. Is the risk real? We've successfully tested the latest models of Honda vehicles, and we strongly believe the vulnerability affects all Honda vehicles currently existing on the market. What makes this bug unique? Or what's the difference between CVE 2022-27254 and 2019-2626? In other words, 
vehicle hacking has a rich history. They wrote, during the research, we noted the other researchers have found similar vulnerabilities in Honda vehicles based on the description of, quote, the remote keyless system on Honda VR, Honda HRV 2017 vehicles sends the same RF signal to each door open request, which might allow a replay attack. Uh-huh. What they found is a simpler fixed code vulnerability where an attacker can simply record the transmission in advance and replay it later to cause the door to lock or unlock. However, most modern vehicles, including Honda automobiles, implemented a proprietary rolling code mechanism to prevent fixed code replay attacks. The bug we discovered, they wrote, is in regard to the design flaw in the rolling codes mechanism implemented by Honda Motors, which needs to be taken very seriously. Question, is there more technical information about rolling pwn? They said you can follow the author on Twitter at Kevin2600. However, we will not be releasing any tools required to go out and steal the affected vehicles. At a later stage, we will release technical information in order to encourage more researchers to get involved in car security research. Which, boy, it really does seem to be lacking. How to patch the modern automobile for rolling pone bug like this. The common solution requires us to bring the vehicle back to a local dealership as a recall. But the recommended mitigation strategy is to upgrade the vulnerable BCM firmware through over-the-air updates if possible. However, some older vehicles may not support over-the-air. And I should mention, Honda offers no patching for this and, and indicates they have no plans to. What does Honda think about this rolling pone bug? They said, we have searched through the Honda official website, but we can find no contact info to report the vulnerability. It appears that Honda Motor does not have a department to deal with security-related issues for their products. And a person who works at Honda has told us, quote, the best way to report the Honda vulnerability is to contact customer service, yeah, unquote. Right. Sure. That'll, that'll work. That'll work. <laughs> yeah. Does your seat, is your seatbelt tight? Uh, you know, are the, are the brake lights working? Unbelievable. Yeah. Therefore, they said we filed a report to Honda customer service <laughs> and we have not had any reply. <laughs> oh, my yeah, no God. Kidding. That's Earlier horrible. In, Earlier in March of this year, the following similar remote keyless entry attacks on Honda Civics, follow, following similar remote keyless entry attacks on a Honda Civics, bleeping computer reached out to Honda and learned that Honda had no plans to update any of their older model cars. Bleeping computer wrote, Honda told us multiple automakers... In other words, it's not just us. It's not just us. Use legacy technology for implementing remote lock unlock functionality and as such may be vulnerable to, quote, determined and very technologically sophisticated thieves. Of course, that's until, you know, Amazon starts selling the Honda unlocker for 1995 from China. 
They said, at this time, it appears that the devices only appear to work with close proximity or while physically attached to the target vehicle, not so in this case, requiring local reception of radio signals from the vehicle owner's key fob when the vehicle is opened and started nearby. Okay, that's true. A Honda spokesperson told Bleeping Computer. In their statement, Honda explicitly mentions it has not verified the information reported by the researchers, although others have, and cannot confirm if Honda vehicles are actually vulnerable to this type of attack. And one must imagine that Honda doesn't want to know, since knowing might make them culpable. Um, And Honda did add that should the vehicles be vulnerable, quote, Honda has no plan to update older vehicles at this time. And it's important to note, while Honda regularly improves security features as new models are introduced, determined and technologically sophisticated thieves are also working to overcome those features. In other words, we give up. (laughs) So, So all this begs the question, why does this appear? to be such a difficult problem to solve. Both the Tesla-style forward-only counter-advance and Honda's bi-directional resettable counter-solutions are transparent to their users. In other words, you know, the keys just work, right? But Tesla's forward-only system is clearly superior from a security perspective. On a Honda, the ability to passively record a series of unlocking codes, which can then be replayed at any time later, seems like a significant oversight that any engineer who has designing this system would have understood. Of course they would. One thought is that there are likely some intellectual property issues here. There's no question that the first implementers of such rolling codes would have sought patents. That thought led me to ask the Google, where I immediately found U.S. Patent 6225889, titled Method of Producing Rolling Code and Keyless Entry Apparatus Using the Same. The abstract of the patent starts off reading, A rolling code producing method is provided, which may be employed in a keyless entry system for automotive vehicles designed to compare a rolling code derived in a receiver installed in the vehicle and a rolling code derived in a portable transmitter to allow authorized access to the vehicle if both rolling codes match. The rolling code producing method includes producing different rolling codes, thus rolling, in sequence using an initial code variable according to a given algorithm and changing the initial code variable in response to insertion of an initial code variable memory card carried by a vehicle operator into the receiver. Okay, now the good news is this patent was issued... In 1995, and it expired in 2016. Around the same time, also in 1995, garage door openers were suffering from the same lack of security. So 
Brad Ferris and James Fitzgibbon invented, and I have that in quotes, a similar system for their garage door opener employer, the Chamberlain Group, and obtained U.S. patent U.S. 4468869-5. There's been a lot of litigation over these patents through the years, and there's a long trail of bodies. But that's what the patent system does, right? It mostly amounts to a significant source of revenue for intellectual property attorneys. But all these various patents appear to have finally expired back in 2016. So it's unclear why Honda would still be using their broken system today. They apparently were back in 2012, maybe to avoid any litigation or having to, you know, license somebody else's patent. It was Nippon that got the auto patent back in 1995. Um, but it appears that for at least the past six years, there's been no reason not to move to a much stronger forward-only counter scheme such as what Tesla and presumably others have implemented. You know, overall, this truly is, if not a difficult, at least a little more expensive problem to solve. It, it is Difficult to robustly solve it in a one-way-only system. The ultimate way to solve the problem is for there to be a full handshake. The user presses the button on the key fob, which sends a fixed code ping out into the world, identifying itself to any car within range. The car that key is registered to, receives the hello, it's me ping and replies with a nonce challenge. The key fob receives the nonce challenge and either reversibly encrypts it under its shared secret key or hashes it with an HMAC keyed with a shared secret. Either way, it returns the result of that cryptographic operation to the car, which verifies that the key fob must know the secret they share. So the car performs the requested action. That system, while ultimately secure and Internet proven, is significantly more expensive since now both the key fob and the car must support bi-directional communications. The key fob must also be able to receive and the car must also be able to transmit. Given the cost and the complexity of this full solution and the comparatively small additional security margin provided above the forward-only counter-advancement used by Tesla and presumably other forward-thinking automakers, I would say that the small added security is probably not worth the cost. But given that forward-only counter technology has been freely available in the public domain, unencumbered by any patent licensing requirements since at least 2016, Honda's continued use of resettable counter protection since then can only be ascribed as them just not caring. Given the popularity of Hondas, 
and who knows what other car makers may also have been similarly lazy, the relative ease of collecting key fob codes and the ability to later replay them in an entirely passive attack likely opens Honda to some future consumer litigation, I would think. So we'll see what more we hear of this hmm. in the future. <laughs> Fun stuff. What uh, So does that mean if you have a Honda, you should keep your fob in a bag, one of them mesh bags? No. No, that won't solve the problem. Uh, it it really means that you know there is a solution. <laughs> you need a padlock yeah. on your contador. Yeah. It, it does. It does mean you're screwed. It means. I mean, essentially, it means that that. I mean, this completely defeats the replay. The fact is, this is in this inexpensive hardware to do this now. It's just, you know, a, 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 a little SDR that yeah. you can buy on, on, on Amazon, a software-defined radio. Uh, and, and if, you know, borrow a friend's Honda fob, you know, see how it works, capture the codes, and then you could capture the codes from anybody else. Wow. And now we, and now we know that basically this renders the, the forward-only protection completely vulnerable. For a long time, so Honda Accords were the most stolen cars in America. I, I think they're going to reclaim their crown. Honda anythings, apparently. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. So it may well be that you can't drive off with a car, but you certainly don't want to put any, you don't want to leave anything, you know, important. You don't want to trust your car door locks, essentially, right. is right. what it means. Right. The number one car in America uh, stolen, Honda Civic. Number two, Honda Accord. Wow. And I, I don't know if that's related to this. Probably not, just to their desirability in the stolen car market. But still. Their, yeah, their, their generic nature. Their genericness. Yeah, because yeah, the Camry's yeah. third. The Nissan Altima's fourth. Man, I, if I'm going to steal a car, I'm going to steal a Hummer. I'm going to steal a Jaguar, a Porsche. Have some fun. Ha, get something good. Yeah. And, and arrested and <laughs> yeah. taken away. Yeah. Actually, maybe that's old because now I'm looking. Now that says May 13th. Yeah. I'm saying number one is a Ford pickup. <laughs> also popular. Uh, you know, I have on my Ford, I I hope it's a good technique, but I have on my Ford, a, uh, many Fords do have a keypad on the um, thing. And it, unfortunately, it's only four digits. No, I guess it's more than that. Oh, and I, the ones I've seen, they use all 10 digits, but they double them up that's, on five that's keys. That's the problem. There's only five so keys. So it's like, what the hell? And I think this is related to what Honda is doing because it's basically cheapness, right? Use the cheapest possible components. Yeah. Right? Five keys is yeah. half the price of 10. It would be nice to know. I mean, because everybody now has key fob unlock, right? I mean, yeah. like, you know, I mean, and even cars, I, and cars e start. Leo, even I what? have key. I do have to still, I have <laughs> to stick have to turn it in the key? a slot and, and twist it. Oh, yeah, that's I gotta very do that. old fashioned. Yeah. But at least it, uh, it, at least I've got the fob oh, unlocking. Yeah. And I, wow. Interesting. What a world. Yep. All right, Steve. Great show as always. Uh, We're going to miss you next week. I won't be here. Jason Howell, take over for the uh, day. I will be back the following uh, Tuesday. I'm going on that Twit Cruise. With 120 devoted fans who I am sure to a person will say, tell Steve hi. That's I, No matter where I go, that's what I get. Tell Steve hi. So hi, 
<laughs> Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. You can tell him hi yourself. Just go to GRC.com slash feedback. Uh, while you're there, pick up a copy of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive, sorry, mass storage maintenance and recovery utility. Uh, soon to be 6.1, version 6, the current version. You'll get a free upgrade to 6.1 if you buy 6 today. You also get to participate in the development of 6.1, which is imminent. Uh, while you're there, you can also get a copy of the show. Steve has two unique versions of security now. A 16-kilobit version for the bandwidth impaired and really nicely done human-written transcripts so you can read along as you... Uh, listen, but you could also use it to search and find a part of the show that you're looking for. Uh, GRC.com, the place to go. He's on the Twitter, at SGGRC. You can DM him there as well, at SGGRC. We've got copies of the show at our website, twit.tv slash SN. We also have uh, a YouTube channel devoted to security now. It makes it easy to share. You can send people clips. Um, and, of course, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast client and uh, get it uh, the minute it's available of a Tuesday afternoon. Club Twit members don't get it any quicker, but they do get a shorter version, the ad-free version. Club Twit is 7 bucks a month, ad-free versions of all the shows. Plus, you get the uh, Discord, the fabulous Twit Discord, which is really a wonderful community and growing, and the Twit Plus feed. Go to twit.tv slash club twit if you'd like to join. Thanks in advance. It really helps us. It's gonna, we're going to launch new shows thanks to club twit. Lots of them. Uh, we also have shows inside the club that we don't have outside the uh, club like the uh, uh, Stacy's Book Club. and the space. This Week in Space is now public. That's oh, one of the things yeah. the club does, which it gives us a chance to launch a show brand new, no advertisers, so the club members support it. And then once it kind of gets on its feet, we can put an it out to the public. It's an incubator, exactly. Uh, so we really appreciate that. There's yearly uh, subscriptions as well. And I should mention, uh, we are going to add, we've been doing it through iTunes, but we are going to now add uh, individual show subscriptions. So if you say, well, I don't want to pay 7 bucks, you can just get Security Now ad-free for two ninety nine a month. Uh, those, if they're not up yet, will be up soon. Uh, thanks to Memberful, we're able to do that as well. So uh, again, for more information, twit.tv slash club twit. We do the show every Tuesday right after MacBreak Weekly. That's 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 20.30 UTC. Live audio and video streams are, are at uh, live.twit.tv. Chat rooms at irc.twit.tv. That's open to all. And after the fact, Steve's got forums at grc.com. We've got forums at twit.community. Those are free and open to all. Twit.community. There's also uh, twit.social, which is a Mastodon instance. If you've had enough of the Twitter nonsense, Mastodon is a great distributed, federated microblogging service uh, we really love. That's twit.social. And uh, I am in both Twit community and twit.social on a regular basis. So we will see you in there. Thank you, Steve. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Okay, buddy. Bye. Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, editor of Ad Astra Magazine. And each week I'm joined by Tarek Malik, the editor-in-chief over at Space.com. In our new This Week in Space podcast, every Friday, Tarek and I take a deep dive into the stories that define the new space age. What's NASA up to? When will Americans once again set foot on the moon? And how about those samples from the Perseverance rover? When are those coming home? What the heck has Elon Musk done now? In addition to all the latest and greatest in space exploration, we'll take an occasional look at bits of spaceflight history that you probably never heard of, and all with an eye towards having a good time along the way. Check us out in your favorite podcatcher. Thank
Get ready now.